Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. I'm the campus pastor here at our Noblesville campus. Glad to be with you this morning and uh, an opportunity to teach from God's Word today. If you keep up with current events at all, you likely know that a little over a month ago, the rock world lost one of its best when Tom Petty uh, died at the age of 67. Do we have any Tom Petty fans here this morning? I, I figured we would have a few. You know, Tom uh, wrote and recorded a number of hits, well-known songs like Free Fallin' and Learning to Fly, uh, songs that we could probably all at least hum along with, although after the big event, I'm not sure you really know the words. Uh, but in 1989, Petty released a song that he claimed more people connected with than anything else he ever wrote. And it was the lead single from his first solo album. It was titled, I Won't Back Down. Do you know that song? Are you familiar with it? The opening lyrics uh, go like this. I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. And uh, that's such an interesting line to me. The, the message of the song has been described as one of defiance against unnamed forces of difficulty and oppression. And Tom Petty's word picture of choice for his difficulty and oppression was the gates of hell. And I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear that phrase. You know, you can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. Maybe for you, a word picture is all that it is. It's just a, a way of describing some kind of a difficulty in your life or a difficult time. A lot of people use hell that way, don't they? We hear people talk about, man, work is hell right now, right? He's going through hell. And uh, I don't mean to be offensive. That's just the way a lot of people use the word. It's just a descriptor. It's just a word picture. But in reality, it's so much more than that. Because hell is one of two ultimate spiritual realities. The other, obviously, being heaven. It's a, you know, the place where Christ is preparing a place for his church. And if you've believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then heaven is your ultimate spiritual reality. But when we think of hell, we shouldn't just think of a word picture. Hell is an actual place that has been reserved for the enemy of our souls and for those who would reject Jesus. Now, our enemy's name is Satan, and Peter makes it clear in the New Testament that he is like a lion, and he is roaming around, and he's looking for someone to devour. He is alive. He is active in our world today. He is drawing the hearts of men away from truth and into all kinds of sin and evil. And what we're going to see today is that Jesus was very clear about his response to the reality of hell's influence on earth. And he was also clear about what our response should be. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. That's where we're going to spend our time today. If you brought your Bible, uh, turn there with me. If you didn't bring a Bible, these verses are going to be on the screens, but maybe you'd like to follow along as well. There are some Bibles under the seats around you. If you don't own a Bible, please keep one of those as your own. It's our gift to you. But just a little bit of background as you're turning to the passage. Um, what we're about to read today, this happens about three years into the ministry of Jesus. Okay, so we mark that from his baptism to his death. That's what we would call the, the ministry, the public ministry of Jesus. And this is about three years in. 
Now, we've seen throughout this series that Jesus spent a lot of time traveling around. He was performing miracles, he was teaching, and we've seen that Jesus is beginning to draw large, large crowds wherever he goes. People have heard about Jesus, they want to come and see. Uh, some of them are probably following with him around town to town. Uh, but we read in Mark's gospel what happens right before what we're going to read today. And Jesus is in a town called Bethsaida. And uh, the map that we've been using throughout the series shows Bethsaida. Can we put that up real quick? It'll be there at the top of the screen up by Capernaum. And uh, this is about as far north as we've seen Jesus go uh, in the series. Now some speculate that, uh, that in the passage we're going to read today that Jesus is looking for a place to get away from the crowds. We don't know that for sure, but it kind of makes sense because we see that Jesus often is taking his disciples and trying to pull them aside for, uh, for times of refreshing and times of just teaching with them. And so, so potentially they're looking for a place to go to avoid the crowds. And so they're going to go even farther north than Bethsaida today. Here's what we read in Matthew chapter 16, the verse, first half of verse 13. It says that Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, okay? And we're going to pause right there. We haven't even made it through a full sentence. We're already hitting the pause button. But this place is so far north, again, the location isn't even on the map that we've been using. But I want to show it to you on the screen. Today, the place is called Banyas, and you're going to see it up there in the upper right. Underneath, it says Caesarea Philippi, just a little bit to the east of Dan, and we read that Jesus came to this region, and we probably think nothing of it. Because again, throughout the series, we've seen that Jesus is always on the move, traveling from town to town. And so Caesarea Philippi is just another place Jesus went, right? No big deal. But understand that this is a really big deal. Because the first century rabbis taught that no good Jew would ever go to Caesarea Philippi. This region was detestable to them. And understanding why they viewed the region with so much contempt is going to be critical to the significance of what is about to happen in Jesus' ministry here. Now, as I said, Caesarea Philippi is just a few miles to the east of the Old Testament tribe of Dan. And if you know the Old Testament, you know that Dan is where Jeroboam set up an idol in the shape of a golden calf. You can read that uh, story in 1 Kings chapter 12. Uh, don't confuse this with the golden calf that Aaron built. Uh, that happened much earlier in Israel's history. And honestly, you would have thought the Israelites would have learned their lesson back then. But we read that Jeroboam, he makes this idol and he essentially tells the people, this golden calf is your God. Okay, this, this is the God that led you out of Egypt. And he commanded that all of the people would come and they would make sacrifices to this idol. And with that, Jeroboam led the Israelites into idolatry at Dan. And so here in the region of Caesarea Philippi, we see uh, idolatry happening in the Old Testament. Now, Banyas is also the place where the Canaanites came to worship the false god Baal. And if you've read the Old Testament or been around church much, you've probably heard uh, the name of Baal before. Baal is the god that Elijah challenged uh, in 1 Kings chapter 18. When fire came down from heaven, it consumed the altar. If you don't know the story, go and read it. It's a, it's a great one. And I don't want to ruin the ending for you, but I'm just going to tell you it doesn't end well for the prophets of Baal. Okay, so know that going into it. But here at Banyas, there's a spring and the historian Josephus records uh, this spring as being the primary source of the Jordan River. It's called the Spring of Banyas, and we have a picture of it here. 
Uh, and I want you to know that this spring used to flow right out of the mouth of that cave. But in 1837, an earthquake hit, and, uh, and the cave collapsed, and so now the spring comes out from in front of the cave. You can kind of even see how the rock formation uh, is kind of angled down from when that earthquake happened. But understand that, uh, that in ancient times, the, the spring came right out of that cave. And Josephus also records for us that the spring was so deep inside of that cave that whenever people tried to measure its depth, they ran out of cord. Okay, and so it was this seemingly bottomless pit inside of a cave, and it was mysterious to the Canaanites. Now, the ancient people understood that water meant life, and life was a gift from God or from the gods. And so wherever the water was, that must be where the God is. So it was believed that Baal would go into the mouth of this cave in the wintertime and down into the bottomless pit. In fact, the mouth of this cave became known as the gates of hell. It was literally Baal's entrance into the underworld. Now, Baal was a fertility god, and the people believed that his favor was what was needed in order for crops to grow and for rain to come and for the, the trees to produce fruit. And the belief was that in order to draw Baal up from the underworld in the springtime, the people would need to offer a sacrifice. And Baal's sacrifice of choice was newborn babies. And so the people would come to this cave. They would throw an infant into this seemingly bottomless pit. And if blood came up, the sacrifice had been accepted by Baal. And if that didn't happen, another baby was thrown in. And it was this horrific pagan practice that took place here at Caesarea Philippi. Now fast forward to the first century AD, and this is what the site would have looked like. This uh, picture is referred to as the Sanctuary of Pan. The Greeks had come in. Uh, they had done away with the, the practices uh, of sa infant sacrifice, the worship of Baal, but they had replaced that with the worship of, of their own gods. And so um, the Romans came in later. They did the same thing. They added some of their own stuff to it. Now, this place was called Panias, okay, with a P. And just as an interesting side note, when the Arabs came in and took control of the region, uh, they don't pronounce the P sound, and so they called it Banyas. But it was uh, originally called Panias because it was dedicated to the half-goat, half-man god named Pan. And so in this picture, this, this is what the location would have looked like in the first century A.D. This is what it would have looked like for Jesus and his disciples when they visited the region. In the picture, you can see on the left what's called the Temple of Augustus. It was built right over the, the mouth of that cave where the spring used to flow. And the cave itself was dedicated to Pan. It was called the Grotto of Pan. And then just to the right of the temple is the courtyard of Pan and the nymphs. And notice that just above the courtyard, there are some niches carved into the stone. And in those niches were placed idols in the shape of the goat man uh, god Pan. So that's what's going on there. Then the next thing to the, the right is the temple of Zeus. And then you've got a couple of other courtyards there. The court of Nemesis, the tomb temple of the sacred goats and the temple of Pan, and the dancing goats. And so that sounds interesting, <laughs> dancing goats. But you can visit this site today. In fact, uh, we've got a picture of what it looks like now. 
The niches are all still there, carved into the stone. That's where the idols of Pan would have been off to the left. That's the entrance to the the mouth of the cave. Again, the gates of hell. You can see the foundation there of of what was one of the temples. And, uh, And there's some writing in the rock dedicated to this pagan god, Pan. Now, are you beginning to see why this location was so detestable to the Jews? I mean, it was a place with a long history of idolatry and the worship of pagan gods and the infant sacrifices and immorality that would be shocking even for us today. And God had spoken through Moses against all of these things. And so the rabbis taught that this was not a place that a good Jew would ever ever travel to. But Jesus was never one to care about what other people thought, was he? He wasn't after their approval. He wanted to please his father. And so here in our text this morning, we read that Jesus, he came to this region of Caesarea Philippi, and he just walked straight in, and he asks his disciples an interesting question. It says in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Okay, so what are you, what are you hearing? What are people saying about me? Because Jesus knew that these side conversations were happening. People had heard his teachings. Again, they saw his miracles. And uh, they've seen the way he interacts with the Pharisees, how he's not afraid of them. He puts them in their place every single time. And people are talking. They're trying to figure him out. They're trying to figure out who he is. And now Jesus has brought his disciples to this site of pagan worship, the place where people came to meet with their gods, to ask his disciples this question, who do people say I am? And the disciples reply in verse 14. They said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And these are are kind of strange responses if you think about it. Because the, the people seem to be saying that Jesus was someone who had already died. Elijah, Jeremiah, even John the Baptist, who Paul pointed out last week, by this time has been executed by King Herod. They're all dead people. And could it be that that the crowds misunderstood the teachings about the resurrection of the coming Messiah? It seems like they believed that God was going to raise one of the prophets from the dead to rescue Israel. But what's maybe most important to note here is what the people aren't saying. Because to think that Jesus was a prophet like Elijah or Jeremiah, it shows that the people had a great respect for Jesus. They wouldn't have said that about him if they thought he was some kind of a a false teacher or a liar. They had respect for Jesus. But Matthew Henry makes an interesting point in his commentary on this passage. He says this, he says, It's possible for men to have good thoughts about Christ and yet not right ones, a high opinion of him and yet not high enough. And isn't that true even today? I mean, so many people are willing to say that Jesus was a good teacher, There's a moral person, or or maybe even that he was a prophet of God. And those are all good thoughts. They're just not good enough because Jesus wasn't just a man. He was God in the flesh. And so he takes it a step further in verse 15, and he asks his disciples, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And I think Jesus is making a, a distinction here between the crowds, okay, the people who had seen some of Jesus, they had heard some of his teachings, they'd seen some of, of his miracles. He's making a, a distinction between them and the disciples. 
You know, the disciples who had a front row seat to the life and ministry of Jesus. Some of them had been with Jesus from the very beginning. They were there uh, for all of his miracles. They had heard not only his teaching uh, to the crowds, but also these moments where we see Jesus pulling back with just his, just his guys. Just these intimate, private moments of interacting with Jesus. And now Jesus wants to know, after all that you've seen and all you've heard, who do you say I am? And in verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And if you know anything about Peter, you know that he's often the first one to respond when a question is asked or there's action to be taken. And sometimes he does so in error and we give him a really hard time in the church. But this time, Peter speaks with clarity and with accuracy. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And I want you to think about Peter's response in relation to, to where they are. Okay, again, this is Caesarea Philippi, the home of the false gods, the gates of hell, the golden calf of Jeroboam, the stone idols of Pan, all of these inanimate objects that people, people worshipped as gods. And knowing all of this, Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. You're the son of the living God, not a piece of rock in the shape of a goat or a chunk of metal in the shape of a calf. No, those things are lifeless. But you, Jesus, you are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. And Jesus replies in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, this is really interesting. If you look at that statement in the Greek, it literally reads like this. You are Petros, meaning small rock or stone. And then it says, and on this Petra, meaning large rock, I will build my church. You are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. And so in essence, Jesus is saying, Simon, your new name is Rock. And I can use you as a stone to build with. But it's your confession about who I am that is the cornerstone. It's the cornerstone that my church is going to be built on. And again, I think it's significant to consider where Jesus is when he's saying this. Take another look at that picture of Caesarea Philippi today. Because I picture the, the disciples and I picture Jesus standing and looking at this Petra this large rock where the idols are, the rock representing the, the paganism, the immorality of the culture. And Jesus says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. In other words, my church is going to come and it's going to take the place of these pagan practices. And why do we think that might be what Jesus is saying? Well, it has to do with the very next thing Jesus is going to say to his disciples. He says this at the verse, end of verse 18. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Or some translations literally read, the gates of hell will not overcome it. What's the name of the mouth of that cave again? It's the gates of hell, right? It's Baal's entrance into the, the underworld. And understand that Jesus wasn't simply speaking against some ancient pagan god. No, he was speaking against the enemy of our souls. He's speaking against Satan himself. And at times it may seem like he has the upper hand and it may feel like he is winning. And as we look out, just as the disciples did at Caesarea Philippi, and we see the false gods of our day and the immorality of our culture and people celebrating the things that God has called evil, 
there may, may seem to be no path to victory, but know this, in the end, Christ wins, and the gates of hell will not overcome his church. Now, there's one more interesting thing in the imagery that Jesus uses here, and it might be lost on us, because in our modern day, in our American society, um, we don't build walls around our cities. We don't do that anymore. Like, if you want to go to Fishers, you just go to Fishers. You don't have to to go through or over or under a wall to get there. But in the ancient days, if you had a city, man, you put a wall around it because that wall meant protection. That's how you protected your city was by building a wall. And it was understood that the weakest part of any city wall was its gate. And when you think about the purpose of a gate, specifically in battle, its purpose is defensive, isn't it? Like the the gate isn't attacking, the gate is being attacked, and it must be defended. And I think it's so interesting that Jesus uses the defensive imagery of a gate in his declaration to Peter. Because if the gate is the defense, what does that make the church? We're the offense, aren't we? The picture is Christ's church attacking the gates of hell. Now listen... Yesterday was Veterans Day, and uh, I hope that, that you reached out to someone you know and love who maybe has served our country and let them know uh, that you appreciated their service. In fact, I wonder if there's anyone here today who's maybe a veteran. If that's you, would you stand up right now? Could we honor and celebrate you today? Absolutely. Thank you, guys. I thank each and every one of you for your service, and uh, I hope you uh, know that and know that you are appreciated. You know, I've, I've always enjoyed movies and documentaries about our military. I just watched uh, a documentary last week about the history of SEAL Team 6, and if you don't know, SEAL stands for Sea, Air, and Land, and one of the former SEALs on this uh, documentary I watched, he, he said, well, that's just how we get to work. <laughs> we'll go by sea, we'll go by air, we'll go by land. But, but this group, uh, this elite group of soldiers, they're often the first on the ground, even before a major conflict takes place. And they're taking out strategic targets, and they're setting the stage for victory. And it hit me as I was watching this documentary about our military that SEAL Team 6 isn't a defensive unit. I mean, it was obvious that there were some times when they found themselves in that position and they had to defend, but that's not what they were made to do. SEAL Team 6 is an offensive unit. They have a mission to execute. They go in, they do their job, and then they're on to the next mission. And it hit me that that is exactly how the church should operate. That's exactly what Christ had in mind when he talked about the gates of hell. We've been given a mission to make disciples, to take the message of Christ into every dark corner of this world. And the church should be in the business of identifying and attacking the gates of hell in our cities and in our schools and in our communities and even in our homes. And we should be in the business of bringing freedom to those who are being held captive by the enemy of our souls. And it's a mission where we, the church, are on the offense, not on the defense. But I'm afraid that that's not what we've become known for. In fact, in our modern American culture, when we talk about church, what people think about is a building, right? What people think about is is an hour on Sunday. We think about this place. We think of a building. We think about walls and padded seats and Paul Muma, right? 
And who doesn't love Paul? I'm going to give him a hard time. But this is our church, right? This is our church, and we're safe in here, and everybody thinks like me and talks like me and acts like me. And so we huddle up and we tuck in behind these walls. And instead of storming the gates of hell, we spend all of our time protecting the gates of heaven. And when we do that, the mission fails. Some of you will be familiar with the name C.T. Studd. Okay, and let's just get this out of the way. Yes, he has the coolest name in the history of manliness. Okay, C.T. Studd. But he was a British-born missionary who felt compelled to take the message of Jesus to people who had never heard it. And before he left for his first missionary journey to China, he wrote these words. He said, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And Stud understood the mission. And here's the great thing. You don't have to go to China to storm the gates of hell. Now, if God calls you to go to China, go to China. But understand that this mission isn't just for the missionaries. This mission isn't just for the pastors. This mission is for every person who has believed in Jesus and surrendered their life to him. It's the everyday commission that as you go, you're to make disciples. As you go to work, as you go to school, as you go to the store, we should be looking for places where the enemy has taken ground, where he has set up a wall, and we should be known for attacking the gates. And here's the best part. Jesus says those gates... They won't prevail against his church. And absolutely, there will be setbacks. You know, we'll experience resistance as we do so. We may even experience some casualties. That's the reality of battle. But we can know that in the end, the victory is ours. But we have to be willing to go and fight. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is, are you ready to get in the fight with us? And I want to offer you two suggestions of what that might tangibly mean. The first is this. I want to challenge you to join the fight at Genesis Church. Join the fight at Genesis Church. I was convicted by some statistics I read last week, and I want to share them with you. Because according to some research by the Barna Group, 77% of adult Christians made their decision to follow Christ before the age of 18. Okay, three-quarters of every adult Christian made that decision to follow Christ before they turned 18 years of age. And 43%, almost half, made the decision before the age of 13. And folks, I want you to hear me clearly on this. Our Gen Kids ministry is not child care. Okay, it's not babysitting so that mom and dad can go to church and get a break from junior for a little while. In fact, according to these statistics, our Gen Kids ministry is the most important thing that happens in this building on Sunday mornings. And we can celebrate that. And yes, we absolutely believe that parents should be the primary spiritual influence in their kids' lives. And yes, we absolutely believe that the mission has to extend outside of these walls. But understand this. This is like low-hanging fruit, okay? They're here every single Sunday. So I just want to ask, what's your plan to fight for our kids? How are you planning to do that? And could I suggest a plan? How about one service, one Sunday a month? You like coming to second service? 
Come early, one Sunday a month. Serve during first service in our kids' ministry. Join the battle back there. Get in the fight for our kids. And then still come and worship with us that second service. Just one Sunday a month. And you might be thinking, but I can't teach. That's not a problem. Like, be a helper in a classroom so somebody else can teach. Just get in the fight. And can I just speak to you very honestly as your campus pastor this morning? Because this is very troubling to me. We had to close one of our classrooms this morning because no one was willing to step up and serve in it. And so at the last minute, we're shuffling kids around and we're overwhelming volunteers. And it's not the volunteers' fault. Like, they're faithful. They're coming. They're signed up. We just don't have enough people in the fight. We've got enough people. We just don't have enough people in the fight. So if you're ready to attack the gates of hell with us in our Gen Kids ministry, I want you to email info at genesischurch.me and let us know. Or just go find Ryan Hornbaker after this service and tell him, I'm in. I'm in. I'm coming into the fight. We want you. We need you. You can come and see the great things that are happening back there. Check it out before you commit and then get in the fight with us. Here's another action step for you. Join the fight in your own circles. Join the fight in your own circles. Listen, you have lost people in your life. You do. Every single one of us, we have lost people in our life. Jesus said, open your eyes. The harvest is plentiful. That's the lost people who are all around. But it's, it's really easy, and I think one of Satan's greatest tactics and tricks is for, to make us either think that they're not lost or, or just to, to, to forget that they are, Okay? But there are lost people in your life. And so what I want you to do right now is I want you to think of the name of one person in your life who is not in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. They have never experienced his forgiveness. Who is it? Can you see their face? Do you know know the name? Do you have a name in your head? Now listen to me. That person is facing a Christless eternity in hell. And you're thinking, man, Ben, you're you're going really serious and really deep this morning. You're right. I am. I intend to. Because we don't have time to play games. These people are lost and going to hell. But here's the good news. You and I, the church, we've been invited into the ministry of reconciliation. And you're saying, well, I I don't know how to do that. Like, I don't know how to share my faith. I don't know how to talk to people about God, and and I don't know what to do. Well, the, the action step for you is this. You need to sign up for our Multiply Workshop. We showed you a video about it earlier on December 2nd. If you've already got plans on the 2nd, cancel them. Because in just one morning, we're going to teach you how to share the gospel and to begin making disciples and to do something that's going to have an impact in all of eternity. Okay, we're going to give you some tools. We're going to give you a strategy that works. I've seen it work firsthand. All you have to do is show up. And you can register on the app or online at genesischurch.me. But make this a priority. And join us in the fight. I'm going to close with this. Christ Church was never meant to be a defensive unit. God is perfectly capable of defending himself. Do you know that? Our job is to join him in the same rescue mission that saved your life and mine, the ministry of reconciliation. Our job is to attack the gates of hell wherever we find them. And as we go to make disciples, that's what we want to be about at Genesis Church. And I just want to ask you this morning, you want to join me in picking a fight at the gates of hell?
Because we're not just going to sit on our hands. Like, that's not what we were saved for, just to sit around waiting for Jesus to come back. Like, there's work to do. And Paul says in the New Testament, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But as long as I go on living, it's going to mean fruitful labor for me. And I want it to mean that for you too. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I thank you this morning that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And that's true for every single person in this room, Lord. You knew full well that while we were still living as enemies of the cross, while we were still a liability to your kingdom and to your name, man, you gave everything for us. You sent your one and only son who lived a perfectly sinless life. Father, who lived as a man to show us the way to live and laid down his life to pay for our sins. Father, you did that for us because you so loved the world. And I just thank you for that this morning. I thank you for inviting us into the ministry of reconciliation. And Father, if if you have found that we have not been a part of that, if we have just been sitting on our hands, twiddling our thumbs, waiting for Jesus to come back, Lord, I repent of that today. And I pray that our church repents of that today, recognizing, Father, that we're not a defensive unit that's supposed to just huddle up here on Sundays. But Father, that we're to go out We're to storm the gates of hell. We're to be making disciples. That's what you have called us to, the same rescue mission that, that, Father, you employed to rescue us, that now we get to be a part of that to rescue others. Lord, start a fire in our hearts for that, maybe even today. And I pray that we would take some of these tangible steps towards attacking the gates of hell, knowing that the gates will not overcome your church, that in the end we have victory but we want to be faithful to it until the day Christ comes. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray those things this morning.